Thank you. We are in Isaiah 41. If you have a blue Bible underneath your seat, it's going to be on page 348. Set forth your case, says the Lord. Bring your proofs, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring them and tell us what is to happen. Tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome, or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what is to come hereafter, that we may know that you are gods. Do good or do harm, that we may be dismayed and terrified. Behold, you are nothing, and your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. I stirred up one from the north, and he has come, from the rising of the sun, and he shall call upon my name, and he shall trample on the rulers as on mortar, as the potter treads clay. Who declared it from the beginning, that we might know, and beforehand, that we might say, he is right? There was none who declared it, none who proclaimed, none who heard your words. I was the first to say to Zion, behold, here they are, and I give to Jerusalem a herald of good news. But when I look, there is no one. Among these, there is no counselor who, when I ask, gives an answer. Behold, they are all a delusion, their works are nothing, their mental images are empty wind. This is the word of the Lord. You can have a seat. Well, good morning, Redemption North Mountain. I'm excited to be here with you and to preach from God's word. Today, um, if we've never met, my name is Xavier. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, Josh is not here today. He texted me, he said something about how he needed to prep for the Super Bowl or something <laughs> like that. No, I'm just joking. Uh, he's out in Queen Creek right now, preaching at uh, Redemption Gateway. Uh, so if you could be praying for him, that he would be uh, encouraging to their community out there. All of their pastors are in Turkey right now. Uh, working with some missionaries. So if you could also be praying for them that the Lord would just keep them safe and help them uh, do a good work out there. But um, so I've only been here for about a month now as a pastor, and I know some of us don't know each other yet. So one thing I want to show you was my family. I have a wife and a son. Here's a picture of uh, both of them. Uh, my wife is beautiful. My son is the cutest kid ever. So uh, he has a beanie right there. He looks like a cool like skater kid. But this is what he looks like, uh, this next picture. He has like a bunch of hair, just a sweet boy. He's eight months old, um, and I just love him a ton. So they'll be here this next service. So I just want to say, since I'm new here, if we haven't met, I would love if you just came and said hi afterwards so I can introduce myself to you and that I could get to know you as well. So here at the church, we're in a new series called The Servant King. We're going through Isaiah chapters 40 through 55. Uh, and if you weren't here last week, what I would suggest you doing is going and checking out on Spotify or on YouTube the sermon from last week. Uh, Josh does like a five to 10 minute explanation of the context of what it is that we're preaching through. But a very quick version of that is this. Isaiah is a Old Testament prophet He's somewhat the prophet of prophets. He's giving a vision and a message to God's people, Israel. And the book is split into these two sections. The first one is this. Chapters 1 through 39 is all about judgment. And chapters 40 through 66 is all about hope. So we're going through chapters 40 through 55, which in the Hebrew is one giant poem. 
And what Isaiah is doing is he has a vision from where he's at about 200 years in the future, and he's giving the Israelites this message and vision from God. So today what we're doing is we're going through chapters 41 and 42, which are a lot of verses and it's a lot of text. So I want to set some expectations before we actually go into that. Uh, I'm not going to be going verse by verse. What I'll be doing is kind of sharing the big picture of what it is that God wants to communicate. And then what we'll be doing is just jumping around to different verses to display what it is that God is actually sharing. It seems like in these chapters, what God is doing is he wants to intentionally point out two different things for the Israelites, and then he has one big goal in mind for them. And I want to explain it in this way. About six months ago, uh, I woke up in the middle of the night, 3 a.m., and my stomach was killing me. So I wake up my wife, like, wake her up. Hey, can you give me the heating pad? She gives me the heating pad. I'm like, hopefully this will help me feel better. A couple hours go by, and the pain is getting worse and worse. By like 6 a.m., I told my wife, I can't go to work. So I text everyone at work, hey, I'm not, I'm not showing up today. And you know what? Just to be honest, I'm a pretty dramatic person, so I thought, you know, this is probably not that big of a deal. Um, but as the hours went on, it has kept on getting really bad. So at one point, I'm laying on the bed. I'm like, I can't talk anymore. My chest hurts. And my wife's like, hey, I think we should go to the ER. So we head over there. And when we pull in, uh, if you've ever been to the ER, it's the worst sitting there for a really long time. My mom told me if, you know, they know your chest is hurting, they'll send you back. So I made a decision before going in that I was going to outwardly express the pain I was feeling inside. So my wife is at the table and I'm like holding my chest and my stomach, walking in. Oh, like I'm like audibly expressing. I come up, hand against the window. I'm like, please help me. Like, get this guy back right away. They like bring a wheelchair, bring me back. Long story short, the doctor comes up and he's like, your appendix is really mad. I go, I don't know what that means. And they say, hey, you you have appendicitis. I'm like, so what do I need to do? They're like, 7 p.m. tonight you have to get surgery. So that same night was my first surgery ever. Anesthesia is a weird thing. I remember asking like, do I have to count? They're like, no. I was like, can I pray? They're like, yeah, sure. So they start the anesthesia. I'm like, "Uh, can I start praying now? They're like, yeah. I'm like, Father, would you? And the next thing I know, there's like a random lady in front of me. I'm like, where am I right now? It's like, the surgery's done. I'm like, okay, I guess, guess that's the way this works. So uh, while I was there in the hospital, they kind of explained to me uh, what happens if appendicitis is not diagnosed correctly. It's a weird thing. It kind of comes out of nowhere. They don't have a really good explanation of what it is that causes it. But what makes it tough is if it's diagnosed incorrectly or untreated, what can happen is your appendix can explode and bacteria will fill your body, which could lead to some pretty bad damage to your body, if not death. Like some people don't actually get it treated because the bacteria spreads, they actually end up dying from this sickness. And this is kind of the way that I see this passage. The Israelites have a sickness. It's spreading throughout their body right now, spreading throughout their hearts. God is looking at them knowing if the diagnosis is not correct, if they leave this untreated, it will continue to spread throughout their hearts and the people, and it will kill them. So he comes onto the scene and says, I want to give you the diagnosis. I want to tell you what's wrong so that you could actually get healing from what's happening with you guys. God comes on and he says, this is your sickness. This is your problem. This is what's going on with you guys. 
Israel, you have taken your eyes off of me and you have placed them on something else. You are worshiping idols instead of worshiping God. So what God wants to do is he wants to not only clarify what it is, the sickness that they have, but he wants to display somewhat of a court case to say, this is what you're dealing with. Here are idols and here is me. And I want to give you a choice to say, one of us is worth worshiping and one of us is not. One will leave you with sickness growing throughout your body and eventually killing you and one will lead you to life. The main point for today for the Israelites and for us is this, that all of our worship must be placed on the Lord. All of our worship must be placed on the Lord. With that on our minds, that being said, let me take a moment just to pray before we go into the message. So Father, we just come to you right now asking, would you lead this time from your word? Would you teach us? Would you guide us? My big prayer is that just throughout this time, you would be kind to us to reveal anything that we might be worshiping instead of you. God, would you bring our eyes back to you in any area of our life that we need to. We love you so much. Amen. So God's diagnosis is this. The Israelites are worshiping idols instead of God. That is the diagnosis. But it's worth defining idols and worship before diving into the specifics of this. So let's start first with idols. Tim Keller has a really good definition for this. An idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. Anything that is so central and essential to your life that should lose it your life would feel hardly worth living. So the definition here is broad enough for us to understand that anything can become an idol, good things and bad things. But I think what happens is it usually fits under one of these four categories. One is they end up being pleasure idols. So these are things that we run to instead of God, things like food or sex or entertainment or sports. Another one is power idols, things that we run to like our jobs or money or success, achievement, our nation, or even our ethnicity. Uh, love idols, maybe people that we run to like our spouse or our family or even ourselves. And then lastly, numbing idols. When things are going tough in our life, instead of running to God, sometimes we run to our addictions or entertainment or even our phones. So this is good for us to know there are specific things in our life and in the Israelites' life that they are running to, but it's broad enough for us to know anything in our life can become an idol. These are not necessarily bad things I just listed, but when they take the place of God in our life, they become an idol. The second thing I want us to look at is worship. When we think about worship, we usually think like Brittany up here leading us, we're singing songs. So when we think worship towards idols, we think like, Sam Smith at the Grammys, dressed up as like the devil, demon background dancers. But this isn't necessarily the reality. This is also what Tim Keller says about worship. Worship is what we or where we primarily establish our trust, our obedience, and our love. Where we primarily establish our trust, our obedience, and our love. Of course, we can love our spouse, but who is our first love? 
Of course, we should be obedient to our bosses, but who are we primarily obedient to? Of course, we could trust the money that we have, but what if it's all taken away? The question is, where are we primarily establishing these things? Singing songs is a form of adoration towards God, but that's just an example of where we place our love. So with these definitions in our mind of idols and worship, the question at hand is, why does Israel, and why often do we, give our worship, our trust, our love, our obedience towards idols instead of what Josh said last week, a good, great, gracious, and glorious God? And this is where we see in the passage, chapter 41, verse 7, says this, The craftsman strengthens the goldsmith. And he who smooths with the hammer, him who strikes the anvil, saying to the soldering, which is glue, it is good. And they strengthen it with nails so that it cannot be moved. What this passage is talking about is specifically the building of an idol. That when the idol is built, it's literally goldsmith that are building the idol, shaping it and making it into something. Not only that, but as they finish the product, they're the ones approving of the idol saying, it's good. It's exactly what I wanted it to be. Then to finish it off, they nail it in the ground and establish it to say, now our idol is established. The point being made here is the reason that Israelites, and often we, run to idols is because they are man-made, curated by us, approved by us, and controlled by us. I think of it this way. Uh, I was a high school pastor for years, and a couple years back, I was sitting at Topgolf with one of my high school guys. Me and him were playing, and I just asked him, how are you doing? Like, how's life? And he goes, I'm not doing so well. I go, what's wrong? He's like, well, I have this whole plan. I, I have to have a certain GPA to get the scholarship at ASU. That's where I want to go to college. And I feel like my plan not, might not work because I cheated on a math exam, and my teacher caught me, and we have a meeting tomorrow. So I ask him, what's the plan? Like, what do you think you should do? And he thinks for a moment, and then he says, I think I need to double down and lie to her. And I was like, I don't, I don't think that's a good idea. So I just kind of walked him through a couple scenarios. I said, uh, I think you should just go in and say the truth. I think you should go in and just say, look, I cheated on the exam. And I said, let's just play out a couple scenarios. Let's say you go in and you say, Miss, whatever her name is, I cheated on the test and I'm so sorry. And let's say she looks back at you and says, thank you for your honesty. Thank you that you would come and be truthful. Because you were so honest, I will let you redo the test. What would you do in that scenario? He said, of course, I would tell the truth. I was like, okay, let's just play the scenario again. You go in, you tell the truth. You say, I cheated on the test. And she looks back at you and says, thank you for your honesty. I admire that you told the truth. And because you cheated, you're going to get a zero still. What would you do in that scenario? He said, I would lie. And I was like, okay, that's good to know, I guess. And it's funny to hear that story, but I think that high school student actually gives some language to what the Israelites are dealing with and what often we deal with. When trusting, obeying, and loving God doesn't fit our desires or our goals or our dreams, then we can make our own idols. We'll shape our own gods that will fit our own needs. They will approve of the things we approve of. They will love the things that we love. And we can trust them to fulfill our dreams for our life. The idol might be just ourselves. It might be an object. Or we might just call it Jesus, but make our own version of him. 
The idols in our life, though, only get power from the fact that we are the ones creating them. So how does this play out in our life? For the high school student, it looked like this. God desires obedience in our lives to him, but lying benefited him and his goals more than obeying God. So he obeyed his goals before obeying God. Or maybe it's our last series about money. God's desire is for us to give to the poor, to use our money for the kingdom and not to build earthly riches, but heavenly. But maybe our goal is to be rich. We don't really want to give money. We just want to store it up for us. So the love of money comes before the love of God. Or maybe God's desire for us when we are dealing with pain or suffering or hurt in our life is to run to him and to sit in reality. But maybe we trust distraction or pleasure or addiction more than trusting in sitting with God. The point here is this. Big or small, Israel and us, we all deal with idol worship in some capacity, big or small. But this is why uh, God steps in and he makes this claim and then he continues on to show the reality of what idols actually are and what the end result is. This is where in the passage, he just starts going after the idols, pointing out a few different things about them. So let's just start off by saying what it is that God says. First, he says this, they cannot actually fulfill what they claim they can. They can't actually fulfill anything. They're all talk. They can't do anything. Chapter 41, verse 24 says this about idols. Behold, you are nothing, and your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. The point being, they can't fulfill anything in your life. They are not actually real in that sense. Continuing on, this is what he says. They are also a delusion. Chapter 41, verse 29, he says, Behold, they are all a delusion, which means a deception. They're deceitful. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. Idols lure us in with big promises of pleasure and power and what we think we want just to deceive us. Instead of giving us the life they promised, they leave us empty. And then last, this is what he says, they put to shame those who worship them. They put to shame those who worship them. Chapter 42, verse 17 says, they are turned back, the people that worship idols, they are turned back and utterly put to shame who trust in carved idols, who say to metal images, you are our gods. Whenever we go to idols to try to find fulfillment or satisfaction, we always leave with shame. They always fail us and leave us empty. Uh, Cynthia Heimel has a really good quote that I think describes the experience when we go to worship idols. The idol in this example is fame, and this is what she says. I pity celebrities. No, I do. Celebrities were once perfectly pleasant human beings, but now their wrath is awful. More than any of us, they wanted fame. They worked, they pushed, and the morning after each of them became famous, they wanted to take an overdose because that giant thing they were striving for, that fame thing that was going to make everything okay, that was going to make their lives bearable, that was going to provide them with personal fulfillment and happiness had happened and nothing changed. They were still them. 
that disillusionment turned them howling and insufferable. We often run to idols. Israel is running to idols. We often run to idols, our own made-up gods in our own life that we think will bring us fulfillment or satisfaction, rest or peace, distraction, love, and they never keep their promises. They always deceive us and they send us off filled with shame. God puts idols fully on display to show Israel and us that they will not work. And then he takes time on the other side to give all of us good news by showing who he is. On the other side of that, in this passage, what God does is he begins to make some claims about his identity and the reason he is actually worth our worship, worth our trust and our obedience and our love. This is what he says about himself. He starts off with this claim that he is sovereign, that he is sovereign. When uh, they are getting, the Israel is getting uh, this vision, the vision is in the place where they're going to be in exile under the rule of a foreign king. And what God says in chapter 41, he says uh, in verse 2, he says, who stirred up one from the east whom victory meets at every step? He continues to describe this person. For them, they would have known who that was. They would have been referring to Cyrus, who was going to be the person ruling over them. God's making a really big claim here. He's saying, even the person that's going to be ruling over you, the foreign ruler, I'm the one who put him in that place. And then he says, I, the Lord, the first and the last, I am he. What he wants them and us to know is that he is sovereign. He's able to do his holy will. He is all in control. He's never shocked. There's nothing that happens where he goes, I didn't expect that one to happen. He is consistently confident in what is happening because he is all in control. Then he says that he has never failed before. He wants Israel to remember, I've never failed about anything I've claimed in the past. Chapter 41, verse 18, he says, I will open rivers on the bare heights and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. Israel, this would have rang in their ears. They would have remembered what happened when God freed Moses and the Israelites from slavery. They would have remembered God actually kept his promise and he has never failed before. Then he says this, not only that, but I always keep my promises. Chapter 42, verse 9 says, Behold, the former things have come to pass and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you them. I will keep my promises. I speak of the future. I make promises to you and I always follow through. This is what God wants you to know about himself is that he is faithful and committed to what he says. With all of these powerful things about who he is, he wants them to know not only that, but I am working for the good of my people. God is always working for the good of his people. Chapter 41, verse 10, it says, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous hand. God is constantly working for the good of his people. Not necessarily the comfort of his people, but for their ultimate good, which is him. 
So he says all these things, and then he wraps it up with one big claim about himself. And this is where we know we could actually establish our worship on him. All this is perfected in the fact that the Lord never changes. The Lord never changes. It could be easy for us to believe that God changes in a world that is constantly changing. Like I remember 15 years ago, I'm in the car with my dad and my brother. We're driving through Jack in the Box, and my dad tells us, hey, I just ordered something. I think you guys are going to be excited about it. We're like, what is it that you ordered? He goes, I ordered this thing called the iPhone. And we were like, what is that? He's like, it's a phone that you can call on, you can text on, and you can buy and download music on the phone. We were like, are you serious? This is crazy. But it's, it's funny to think. That wasn't that long ago. Like, you think about just technology, how much has changed over the like, last 15 years? Think about the way that we deal with entertainment. You remember when Blockbuster and Hollywood Video were a thing? And then Redbox, remember when that was like revolutionary? Like, oh my gosh, Redbox? And like everything is changing around us. Even the way that people think and relate to the world and each other, everything is changing around us. It's easy for us to think, doesn't God change too? Maybe God is progressing. Maybe he thinks things are different. But then what he says is this, and this is the reason why he is worth Israel's and our worship, is because he claims that he never changes. Chapter 42, verse 8, he says, I am the Lord, that is my name. I am the Lord, that is my name. When your Bible says L-O-R-D, all caps, it means Yahweh. And Yahweh means I am. So what is God saying here? I am who I am, that is my name. I am who I am, I will always be who I am. God is who he is, he will never change. He will always be good and gracious, great and glorious. He will always be sovereign. He will continue not to fail. He will continue to keep his promises. He will continue to work for the good of his people. He puts on this on display for us to know that he is worth our worship because he is the rock in an ever-changing world. He's the hope in the midst of brokenness. He's the security, the fact he doesn't change in the midst of fear. He's the strength in the midst of weakness. He deserves our trust and our love, and our obedience. For Israel, this would have been really good news. And for us, it's even better news because of the revelation that we have in Jesus. The Lord Yahweh, I am, came to earth, born of a virgin, a Middle Eastern man, fully God, fully man, named Jesus 2,000 years ago, lives a perfect life, dies on a cross, atones for our sins, and he's resurrected from the grave. And we know that he keeps his promises. So when Jesus promises reconciliation in our relationship with God the Father, we know he keeps his promises. When he promises the indwelling of God the Spirit and forgiveness of sins, we can know he keeps his promises. And when we look back at the cross, we can know that Jesus is sovereign, that he doesn't fail, that he's working for the good of his people, and that Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is worth our worship. So when the temptation comes for us to look away and to put our trust, our love, 
and our worship, our obedience on the feet of idols, other things besides God, we can know that God is actually trustworthy because of who he is, that he is worth establishing all of our worship on him. With that in our mind, the question is, what is it that we should do? What are some practices that we could actually have in our life to help us set down our idols and set our worship back on Christ? So here are just a few things. First, maybe you're here and you've never actually placed your, like, your faith and your trust in Christ. Maybe you're here and you say, I'm still kind of trying to figure out what it is I believe about Jesus. I've never put my faith in him. And what I want to say is that I hope you hear what, I'm, like, what this message is about, that he's worth all of your faith and your trust. And if you're curious about that, you need prayer, you want to talk about that, that I'm here for that after the service. For all of us that have placed our faith in Jesus, what we often need is what the Israelites are receiving in this passage, a reminder. And we actually have some rhythms here at the church that I would encourage all of us just to be consistent in in our lives. This is somewhat of an encouragement to all of you guys. One of the main things for us that brings us into reminder of who God is is the local gathering of believers at church, a.k.a. Sunday church service. Like this is exactly what we need weekly. A reminder each week for us through singing of songs, taking communion, being taught under God's word, the community of believers for us to take our eyes off of idols and to place them back onto God. So the encouragement is this is the thing that we need, what you're doing right now. We should all just be consistent with this in our life. The other thing is this. I just want to give you a simple practice that you could do this week that would help you bring your eyes back onto God. And it's just a type of reflective prayer. So I think all of us would be deceiving ourselves if we said, oh, like this is a, I guess I understand that, but I don't really have any idols in my life. I think all of us have something that we are tempted to run to instead of God in times in our life. So for this week, my encouragement to us is that we would enter into this reflective prayer. This is all that I ask, is that you would take five to ten minutes this week to pray with God and simply ask him, would you reveal to me the idols of my life? Would you reveal to me the idols of my life? As you pray to God, just let God begin to reveal to you the places in your life where you might be taking your eyes off of him. And then as those things come to mind, just place those at his feet, saying, God, I see that's an idol of mine, and I trust you. I trust you instead of those things. I trust you instead of the approval of man. I trust you more than my money. I trust you more than the things, my possessions, whatever it is that comes to mind. With all that being said, let me actually just pray over us right now as the band comes up and as we go into communion. So Holy Spirit, I just pray, would you begin to work in our lives to reveal to us any idols that we have? I pray that you're kind to us as you do that. One of my big things just to ask is the idols in our life that we um, are not noticing, the ones that we can't actually tell are present, would you show us those? And even though it might be hard, would you give us the strength and the grace to be able to place those at your feet. So God, would you please lead us this week, help us establish our trust and our love and our obedience to you. 
would you guide us and be kind to us? We love you so much. Amen.